this morning you can open up your Bible um, to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. If you need a Bible, the ushers uh, come by. Just raise your hand and they'll get one to you. And as always, if you don't own one, uh, that's our gift to you. Or if you know someone who you want to give it to, uh, it's our gift to them. So this morning, we are gathering to consider um, our faith. Uh, last week, I kind of mentioned the three core values that we have as a church. Uh, faith, community, and mission. And those core values set up where we're going to head the last three sessions of this Covenant Membership Series. And today, we are dealing with our faith, which the kind of one-liner I gave to identify what I mean when I say our faith is, is how we know and love the Lord. It's kind of shorthand for our relationship in the vertical, our relationship with God. How we know and how we love Him, our faith. That's what we're going to be dealing with. And what I want to do um, for you here is just quickly show you what we're going to be what we're going to be touching on. Um, first, I'm going to reintroduce this value to you and kind of dig a little deeper in it. Um, and then from this value, I'm seeing two kind of passions flow out. I'm going to identify two passions underneath this value of faith for us. And then finally, uh, we'll spend a little bit of time reflecting on our core confession and our doctrinal distinctives as a church. Okay? Uh, with that, let me let me read 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Again, not a text I'm going to be dealing with necessarily exegetically like I would normally, um, but still a key text nonetheless for the topic today. Let me read it and we'll pray. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, I'm sorry, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Would you pray with me? God, you know where every person is at in this room right now. You know the status of our hearts. You know the ways we're prone to wander. You know the ways we're prone to forget and neglect the one for whom we were created. The one by whom we've been redeemed. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. God, we wander so many different things. Relationships, significant other. I think that'll fill us. We try to climb the corporate ladder. We try to pad our bank accounts. But it's clear as day in the scriptures. Those things are not what we've been created for. Those things will never give us the meaning we desire. We've been created for you, Lord. For relationship with our Maker and our Savior. So I pray that today, Jesus, you would use this message to encourage that where perhaps people are um, feeling discouraged. I pray, God, that if people don't know you in this room, 
you would use this message to call them, to summons them, summon them forward in a relationship with you. Got to pray that um, if people are already walking with you intimately, that this uh, would be used just to press them even deeper in to the beautiful fellowship that we can have with you in Jesus Christ. Give me your strength, I pray. In your name. Amen. I chose this uh, verse, and, and now it's actually in uh, your bulletin, really. You can see our, our, our values there. I chose this verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, as the key text for um, this value, faith. Uh, you might find that interesting because it doesn't really even have the word faith in it. Uh, but that's because, again, I'm seeing faith as kind of shorthand, our shorthand way of saying uh this is how we relate to God. We have a relationship with God. We value that in this church and we're pressing up towards him. We are his bride. And so I look at this text and I say, man, this this just gets right to the heart of it. We were created for relationship with God. Commenting on this verse, Leon Morris writes this. We came from him and we live for him. He is our origin and goal. Isn't that awesome? I mean, these are the big worldview questions. Where did you come from? Where are you going? And the answer this text gives us is God. That's where we came from. That's what we're headed towards. That's why we're here. Relationship with God. Human beings were created and designed to uh, participate in, in a transcendent reality. A reality that goes way, 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 way above the stuff we just kind of see with our eyes. The mundane world, right? There's something above it that invigorates and infuses the material world that we see. There's another reality, a deeper reality, a higher reality. Beyond the tangible world in which we live. As I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of, of Psalm 19.1 and other, other things. But we as creatures, as really children, of, as offspring of God, if you will, made in his image, um, we are not supposed to kind of look up at the stars and, and, and confine our reflections to the realms of science and art. Like, mm, I wonder, you know, how far away that star is and how big the solar system are. Mm, I wonder, ooh, it's beautiful. I'll draw some pictures. We're meant not to just stop there with science and art. We're meant to kind of explode above that beyond the stars to the one who made the stars and made even us. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. They are telling us something about Him. And as I was thinking about that text, it's almost as if the voice of God, you guys, can be heard kind of calling out from the corners of, of creation, of the created world, just calling out for relationship with you and with me. That's what it means. The heavens are telling us something about him. He, he, he wants to, to know and love us and he wants us to know and love him. He wants relationship with you. And this is why Paul would say 
He's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's Acts 17, 27 and 28. Have you thought about that verse? Have you ever heard that verse? In him you live, move, have your being. He's not far from you right now. Paul's talking to pagans. He's talking to Gentiles who didn't even know. And he's saying, listen, God is your atmosphere, guys. God is your atmosphere. You were created for him. He's coming after you. He's everywhere calling for this relationship. Now, um, when you look out, when you kind of take the first part of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and the idea that, that God is our origin and our goal, and, and we were created for this kind of transcendent reality, uh, and then you look out at the modern scene, it's, it's a devastating thing. Uh, what the kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with some of these terms, but you know, secular humanism and the worldviews that are out there today that basically say, this is our culture these days, guys. Uh, who needs God? It's all about man. That's essentially secular humanism. Get him out of the universe. It's all about us. We can have everything without him. And it's as if, it's as if they kind of suck the soul right out of the universe. And everything around just kind of falls dead like a corpse. And then you wonder why if you follow that train of thought, all of life starts to seem meaningless. There's no more transcendence. There's no more point because there's no more God. And there's this sort of tragic thing that happens where, and it happened with, you know, we, we go over this often in the, um, in the Garden of Eden. But it's essentially the same, the same kind of thing where when God, or I'm sorry, when man uh, kicks God out, so to speak, and gets him out of the way, Man thinks what, what's going to happen is this is going to be for my freedom. You know, God's kind of, uh, he's encroaching upon my freedom here and he's giving me these rules, don't eat, don't touch, whatever. You know what? I'm over that. We think it's going to be for our freedom, but what does it become? It becomes our slavery. It becomes our slavery. Or we think that kicking him out of his universe and out of our life will make us more like God. I mean, that was the promise of the serpent, was it not? Man, when you eat this, you're going to be like him. Don't you know that? Yeah. I call the shots. I rule my world. We think it'll make us more like God. But when we actually reach for it, when we actually kick him out, what we find is that we've, we've actually become more like the animals. We become kind of enslaved in bondage to our instincts and our, and our desires and our cravings. And we're destructive in our behavior. That's... What happens because men and women were not created to exist apart from him. And when you remove him from the universe, you suck the soul out of the universe. And everything just falls around you dead, including yourself. Including yourself. So the good news. <laughs> the second part of 1 Corinthians 8.6. The first part says we were created for him, by him, for him. The second part lays out for us the great rescue and redemption, does it not, in Jesus Christ. It says that not only has God not left him with, uh, himself without a witness in creation, 
He's speaking to us everywhere. First Corinthians 8, 6, second part says, He's also not left us without a Savior. That the very one who created us, the one through whom, you know, all things are, is now coming down to redeem. To redeem us. That, that uh, we now exist uh, through Jesus. He is the one who, 1 Peter 3.18, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you hear that? This relationship has been broken. Man didn't want him, you know, in his life, in the, even in the universe, get out of here. So Christ comes, dies to bring us back, to repair that relationship. He says, you want to kick me out? Kick me out. That's fine. But in the most amazing move of grace, our kicking him out and on the cross becomes his way of turning around and inviting us in. Jesus puts the soul back in the universe. Jesus gives the stars back their singing voice. And Jesus brings man back to God. This is how we come to know and love him through Jesus. This is how we get back into this relationship that we were created for. And this is what we mean when we say that we value faith in this church. We're pressing up towards him. I want us to be pressing up towards him. What are we if we're not going there? Just a club. Just a social venue. It's our faith that invigorates everything else that we do. It's this relationship. Now, I want to ask a question to kind of set us up as we move towards the passions that I was talking about that flow out of uh, this value. Um, How do we know that any of what I just said is actually true? How do we know this? I mean, what are we doing here? We just kind of... I I feel it in my gut. I got this intuition. I had this dream. I read it in the stars. How do we know that this is what God is like? That he has created us, redeemed us, and is bringing us back to himself. How do we know this is what he's done and is doing? How do we know that this is true? How do we know and love the Lord? Answer. He has spoken to us. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Here's, here's what's going on. God, from the very beginning, wants relationship with us and Think about it, your own relationships, it's not rocket science, it requires communication. And so he wants us to know him, therefore he speaks about himself to us. And even when we are kind of, you know, off somewhere in a fog, and in exile, and lost in our sin, he speaks through the fog and says, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, this is what I, I, want, I want with you. He reveals himself to us in his word. And that's why we speak of this value in particular as faith. 
because you guys might know Romans 10:17 faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we come to know and love God by trusting what he has spoken and revealed to us of himself in his word. And this leads then what uh, to what I would identify as a passion of Mercy Hill Church. Uh, namely, we are passionate about, you might see it there in your notes, the divine word. We're passionate about the divine word here. In other words, we're passionate about the Bible. Because the Bible contains God's words to man. You guys know 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. What I imagine is that it's as if God just kind of pulls up a chair. In the Bible, God is just kind of pulling up a chair close to us and saying, this is what I'm like. How are you doing? Let's get to know each other. I want to know and love you and I want you to know and love me. Pressing in in the scriptures and speaking to us. Now, as a church, there are um, two ways that we can relate to this divine word that I want to quickly reflect on. Okay, um, number one, we can we sit under it. We sit under this word, and number two, we we stand upon it. We stand upon this word. First, we sit under it. The word of God. Uh, as it has been recorded in scripture, is is set over us and we are to be underneath it. I mean, he is God, we are not. We, we put ourselves here, we say, you speak. <laughs> you tell us the, what reality is and is not. You give the final interpretation of the facts. You have the first word in this church, God. We give him the first word. Now, it's interesting because 2 Timothy 3.16 is kind of what fuels the charge that Paul gives to Timothy just like a verse or two later uh, in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And Because uh, all scripture is, is breathed out by God, because it's God's word, he turns around to Timothy and he says, therefore, preach the word, Timothy. I want you, Timothy, to set this word over your people and speak it to them. Speak it to them. Speak it to them. They need to be under it. He's got to have the first word in his church. Let it be spoken. Preach it. I remember hearing, um, I went to this kind of like a conference thing at uh, Mark Dever's church in in, uh, Washington, D.C., and I remember him talking about the symbol of, of the pulpit. We don't have one of these really awesome pulpits that some of the East Coast churches have. Like, they've got these crazy things. But the symbol of the pulpit. And he was saying how so many um, today, especially in this kind of postmodern world, want to just do away with preaching. Do away with the pulpit and all that it kind of stands for. Uh, it's kind of outdated, is it not? Like one guy just kind of talking to others, listening. Like, shouldn't we turn this around and do dialogue? Like, isn't that the way that, you know, now we can reach this postmodern culture? Let's take the pulpit and turn it into a table and, and, uh, let's start to dis- have discussion around it instead. This is outdated. This is detestable. I wonder 
if you've ever heard, uh, I mean, we use, um, in the common vernacular, we use preaching almost in, in a, as a derogatory term. Like, has anyone ever told you, don't you preach to me? Don't you preach to me? What do they mean by that? They mean, don't you act like you're better than me, like you're above me, like you know what's up and I don't. Don't you preach to me. So in other words, preaching in our culture has kind of become synonymous with uh, arrogance, pushiness. I don't like it. I don't like it. But we've got it all wrong. Preaching and what I am doing right now must not be interpreted as Nick thinks he is better than everyone else in this room. Although, is it true that pastors can do that? And that's probably why there is this kind of disdain for preaching in our day. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps. But what is happening here, if it's happening rightly in the way God intended it to happen, it's not Nick saying, I am above you, I am better than you. No way. The pulpit and preaching serve a much more sublime reality. They remind us, not that Nick is above us, but that God is above us. That God has the first word in this church. That we were created because God spoke over the formless void and life came into being. And we've been redeemed because God spoke over dead bones. And, 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 and life came into us again. But it was his word that brought life. And so the pulpit and the preaching that animates it is not to say that Nick is better and Nick's agenda and all this stuff. It's to say we need God to speak in this place. And before, before we just start talking back, let's let him speak. It is, believe me, it's a trembling place to be in that position. But that's what the call is. Timothy, preach the word. Give God the first word. Get his word out there. Because this is how God brings the dead to life. And once alive, this is how God continues guiding, nourishing, cherishing, and preserving his people. You remember that text in Ephesians 5? You probably read it, weddings that you go to. Uh, it talks about him washing his bride in the water of his word. What's going on, I pray, in this room even now? Jesus just, he's just pulling out the, the same stuff he pulled around the Last Supper. He's, he's speaking of loins, girding up his loins, and he's taking the, the cloth of the servant and washing his bride right now with his word. This leads to the second way we relate as a church to this divine word. We stand upon it. We stand upon it. I love the, the kind of paradox here, but it's true. Um, when I talk about preaching, it's really just one way, kind of representative of the whole, a way that we kind of live under the authority of God's word. We put his word first and we as a people live under it day in and day out, not just for the hour that Nick preaches or more. Um, but here's the crazy thing about uh, living under the word. Living under this authority. Uh, you might think that being under something sounds oppressive. It sounds like you got this weight and you're, you're down. Nobody wants to be under anybody else. You know, we want to be above. We want to be the one on top. Let me tell you something. When we put ourselves under God, when he is over us, it's not oppressive because he's not a tyrant. 
He's a servant. So what we find is that when we put his word above us, when we let him speak first, we actually start to find that, that, that the word that we sit under becomes the word that we stand upon. He comes down and lifts us up. He speaks words, even hard words, even hard words, guys, not to lower us or destroy us or tear us down, but to build us up in the end. The word that we sit under becomes the word that we stand upon. Stable foundation beneath our feet. This is why when we read the context of 2 Timothy 3.16, listen to where, listen to where Paul goes in verse 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in other words, God, when he's speaking to us, he is trying to profit you. I mean, anybody like profit? I like profit. That's good. He's trying to profit you right now. Complete you. Equip you. In other words, he's trying to bless you. He's trying to help you stand, build you up. That's what he's doing with his word. Not controlling you, manipulating you, oppressing you, ruining your life, taking away all your joy. No, not at all. Now, there's a second passion that I wanted to highlight that flows out of our value of faith. Um, I call it mysterious orthodoxy. Hang with me. I know that doesn't make any sense. But it's something that... um, in my classes in seminary and things, and especially church history, I started going, wow. Orthodoxy and, and mystery often went hand in hand. And let me, let me show you what I mean. Is God one or is he three? Is Christ fully human or is he fully divine? Is God sovereign or is man responsible? The answer to all of those questions is simply yes. But when pressed, how do, how does that work? The answer is simply, I have no idea. (laughs) It's a mystery. I don't understand it. And when we look, um, oh, I, I should say, perhaps now you can kind of see how the first passion flows into the second one. We, we, we take God at his word, even when we can't wrap our minds around it. And, and therefore we kind of follow him into what sometimes is mystery but we say you know what you said it i'm gonna walk in it i'm gonna believe it so let me let me flesh this out for us um so much of what is now considered biblical orthodoxy uh which just basically means you know straight right doctrine uh and belief biblical orthodoxy has been forged along the lines of mystery The church, in a lot of the early creeds and confessions and things, actually, what they were doing was was learning how to articulate clearly what the Bible says uh, about things that they could not understand fully. They were becoming very skilled at articulating clearly what they could not understand fully. Uh, Doctrines like uh, the doctrine of Christ or the Trinity are perfect examples of this. We don't know how God is one in three, but we know we see it. We know it's true. We don't know how Jesus is God and man, but we know we see it. We know that it's true. And on the other hand, 
Here's what was interesting to see. So much of the heresies that came out in church history was actually people unwilling, unwilling to receive the mystery. I'm not going to accept that I can't wrap my mind around this. I'm going to strip uh, the, the Bible of its mystery, and I'm going to fit it into my mind. And so, taking the doctrine of Christ, for example, he's fully God, he's fully man. I don't get it, therefore, he's only, uh, he must not be fully God. That's the heresy of Arianism. Or, I don't get it, therefore, he must not be fully man. That's the heresy of Docetism. You don't know these things. You don't need to know these things. But what you do need to know is that mysterious orthodoxy comes in and says, I don't know how it works, but he's God. I'm not. I believe him. I'm going to articulate clearly those things I see in the Bible, even if I can't understand them fully. Now, I'm going to read you something from my notes here at this point. If a man is to become a Christian, he must finally reach a place where he is willing to say, Jesus, I want you not just as my Savior, but as my Lord. By this, I mean that he must fully surrender to Christ's authority. What you say goes Until then, I'm quite certain that a person cannot even be saved. You either have him as Savior and Lord, or you do not have him at all. And when Jesus is Lord, if we come to things in his word that we don't understand, we don't raise our objections and our fists. We might struggle, we might question. This is okay. I have lots of struggles, lots of questions from time to time. But at last, we have learned the secret of Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He goes on to say, I'm like a child weaned from his mother. I know you're good. I know you're awesome. I don't understand everything. That's okay. That's okay. We let him be God. We receive his interpretation of reality, even if we can't figure out how it all fits together. Somewhere along the way, we started thinking that we we must have all our questions answered before we can believe. But this is really quite foolish when once we step back and consider it. How can we, a finite, time-bound creature, possibly wrap our little minds around the infinite, eternal creator? It is unthinkable. Pun intended. Far better would it be for us if we would stop trying to steal the seat of honor around the table and just put ourselves in the seat of a child. They have more of the fun anyways. God is on the throne. Ours is to trust him and relax. Now, I am not saying that we are not to think deeply about the revelation he has given us in the scriptures. I am giving my life over to such deep thinking But I do mean to say that when at last we have studied and prayed and inquired and still we don't know how God can be both one and three or how Jesus can be both God and man or how God is absolutely sovereign and yet man is still responsible. We don't throw it all out. We accept it on faith. Not blind faith, but a faith that sees clearly. He is God and we are not. 
We embrace the mystery because he is Savior, because he is Lord, and we trust him. There came a point where I realized one of the most reasonable things we can say is that there are going to be places uh, in our faith that are, are unreasonable to us. And that is because we are creatures trying to wrap our minds around the Creator. And if I can wrap, if I as a creature can wrap my whole mind around the Creator, I think I got something wrong. Does that make sense? Now, I hope you understand me there. Yeah, I can't go into it further, but we can talk more if you want. The mystery that entails in our faith uh, will ultimately lead us to one of two places, you guys. One's horrible place to go, one's an awesome place to go. It can lead us to grumbling, or it can lead us to glorying. It can lead us to kind of resentment, like, I don't get this God, what's his deal? Or it could lead us to even deeper, you know, wide-eyed wonder, praise, worship. This is where Paul goes in Romans 11. He's our example. And if you want another example, read Job, because he kind of does both. He grumbles, 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 and then he goes, oh my gosh, I forgot my place. You are God and you are amazing. But Romans 11, Paul comes out uh, from like Romans 9, 10, and, and most of the chapter in 11, talking about the mystery of election and sovereign grace of God and the salvation of sinners. He comes out and he doesn't say, now man, what's up with this God? It's not cool. We don't understand this. This doesn't seem fair. No, you want to know what he does? Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see that? That's the, that is the creature finally getting his place. It's like if Chloe were to actually say once, you're the dad. I think I'll trust you for once. I'll eat my carrots or whatever it is. You know? You know what I'm saying? We finally come into our right place in relationship with Him. That's what I want to do in this church. That's what I want to be like. It's when mystery comes, when we hit hard texts, things that we wish we could kind of strip out and change to fit what we think reality should be. We just, we don't go to grumbling, we don't go to despair, we don't go to resentment, we go to worship. I can't piece it all together. But I trust you. All of this was really to set us up to talk about what now I don't have much time to talk about, um, which is our faith in particular. Um, and by that, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, our core confession and our doctrinal distinctives. Um, let me explain. Some of this might be kind of new. Um, but unfortunately, due to time and, and me wanting to care for you guys instead of bludgeon you like I do often, uh, I'm going to punt to the notebook that I, that I made for you guys because I write more there than I'm able to speak here. So I encourage you to read it. Um, but for now, let me explain to you what I mean. Let's start with the core confession here. 
Regarding our, our core confession, I put it in um, the appendix, appendix three in your notebook. Uh, is where you'd find it. Um, and so if you don't have that, it'll be on the table out there, and we'll have it again next week. But let me at least say this about the core confession. It provides an index of core biblical teaching uh, that we feel you would need to hold to in order to be a covenant member here. Um, many of these articles we would consider necessary for salvation, just basic stuff. Uh, all the articles we would consider necessary for spiritual health. Now, with that, I, I also want to point out that, and you may notice this as you read it, um, I kind of edited, modified, tried to make it actually intentionally ambiguous on, ma- on secondary matters. Uh, intentionally ambiguous on secondary matters. In other words, uh, it doesn't take a stand in this confession on how you know, God's sovereignty relates to man's salvation. It doesn't take a stand on, on baptism and whether it could be administered to infants like Presbyterians think or whether it's for, uh, you know, believers only. Um, so, I was intention- intentionally ambiguous, but let me be clear as to why. The goal was not to water down our faith or our confession as a church. Hopefully you know that by now. I'm not interested in diluting anything in God's word. Um, so the goal was not to water down our church's position on these secondary matters. That's why we have what we'll see in doctrinal distinctives. But actually the goal was to widen our church's doors so as to welcome into the membership of this local church more of those who seem to be genuine members of Christ's universal church. Are you hearing me on that? So in other words, I want to be able to worship with, with, with genuine believers that I might disagree with on, say, even something as significant to me as, as how you got saved, like Arminian brother, or, or someone who has a different perspective on baptism, like a Presbyterian. I went to seminary with Presbyterians. They're amazing followers of Christ. I don't want to say you can't be a covenant member here. So the core confession lays out the kind of fundamentals that, that we think you would need to hold to be a covenant member. But it allows, what it does is it allows space for, for members of this church to kind of grow and wrestle with secondary matters. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I wasn't immediately seeing Calvinist doctrine or things like that. I don't even know if you know what that means. So you might be right where I was. I had no idea. As you read the Bible, you kind of grow and learn. And I didn't want to front load all that theology on, on, on members. Instead, we want to create a place where they can grow and wrestle with what God has to say. There's more about it in your notebook, but I'll move on to our doctrinal distinctives. Because though I say all this about our core confession and the heart behind it, uh, we're not afraid to come down uh, with conviction on secondary matters. It might seem weird, um, but you have some churches that think, oh, we got to just go lowest common denominator, and that's how we preserve unity. That's not the way that we feel we're going to do that here. Uh, I wrote more about that in your notebook, but I, I feel passionate as a pastor called to preach the whole counsel of God that 
When I get to Romans 9, or I get to 1 Timothy 2, or I get to what, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I need to make a decision about, about, you know, the sovereignty of God. I need to make a decision about manhood and womanhood and the roles in the church. I need to make a decision about the spiritual gifts and how they operate. So, it's important that we do, if we're going to preach the whole counsel of God, come down somewhere. We need to make some interpretations. Otherwise, what do you do? Kind of, you know, if you make no interpretation, you kind of make an interpretation. That makes sense. So, we do have doctrinal distinctives, positions that will distinguish us from other churches and other Christians. The difference is, is that we're not going to require this of membership. But we would require it of of eldership. Um, So, these doctrinal distinctives, um, there's a freedom there. But when it comes to the, the, those who kind of lead uh, with the word from the church, uh, we're going to be a little bit stricter. Um, so you should know that, you know, this is, we're going to preach and teach and counsel in accordance with these convictions. Um, if you're interested in, in joining with us. So, with, with that being said, what are Mercy Hill's doctrinal distinctives? Um, beginning with the most fundamental and moving out from there, um, this one honestly isn't even, yeah, but I'll, I'll start here because it's just broad. We are evangelical. We're evangelical. Second, we are reformed. And I'm not even going to identify this. It's in your notebook. I'm sorry if these terms are weird. Uh, try it, read it. If you've got questions, let me know. We are reformed. We are continuationist. We are complementarian. We are baptistic. Just identify certain positions that we have. All I want to do for the rest of our time, you guys, I just want to di- I just want to dive into that second one there, that we are reformed. I want to show you what that means. Uh, don't have time to do that for all of them at all. Um, I'm just going to do it with that one. Okay? You guys ready? All right. By reformed, some of you probably don't even know what I mean. Maybe. I didn't even know what I mean. I need to go back and look. What do I mean by reformed? Usually <laughs> use terminology, you don't even know where it came from. By Reformed, I mean that we hold to a view of God in general and salvation in particular that was regained and clarified in the Reformation of the 16th century, particularly by the uh, French reformer John Calvin. Okay. Now, this Reformed view of salvation is best crystallized in what has come to be known as the five points of Calvinism. Again, some of you may be heard of it, some of you haven't. Uh, these five points are memorably contained uh, within the acronym TULIP. We're going to run through this here now. TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. This is not a classroom. This is a church. Okay, so I know I'm, I'm, I'm talking about these things. Hold on a minute with me. I want to look at these one by one. If this doesn't warm your heart, I don't know what will. Total depravity. By total depravity, here's what I mean. Man is dead in his sin. And wholly opposed to God by nature. Like we're born dead. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, the natural person, person who's just 
by nature who they are, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Did you catch the the craziness of that verse? He says, these guys who just walk around, they're they're just kind of by nature fallen, like all of us. We, humanity, by nature, don't get the things of the Spirit of God because the things of the Spirit of God require the Spirit of God to discern them. Did you hear that? You go, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it means what John said or what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again by the Spirit, we know from verse 5, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you hear that? Before you can see anything worthy in Christ or God and what he has done, you need to be born again by the Spirit. Men are so depraved, so corrupt, so fallen, so dead, that they need to be born again before they can start the Christian life. Before they can even see anything worthwhile in it. That's how far gone we are by nature. Or consider Paul's devastating estimation of humanity in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. He says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He just leaves no room, no room, no wiggle room for me to say, Isn't there, I, you know, but I did this thing, there's something good in me. He says, you're dead, by nature wicked, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's no exceptions, except for one comes in in verse 4 and he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, that's the meaning of grace, you have been saved. Dead, but God, made alive in Christ. So the picture here and where kind of the reformed understanding of salvation comes from, how I read it in the scriptures and I see it clear as day everywhere. And I'm just giving you just a little sprinkling of texts. The picture that we're given is not that man is kind of drowning in the sea of his sin. And, and God in Christ kind of casts a lifesaver down and man can kind of grab a hold of it if he wills. And hold on tight. That's not the picture. The picture is that, that man is not drowning in the sea of his sin. He's, he's, he's drowned. He's dead at the bottom of the sea. And God in the Son, in Jesus, dives down to the depths and grabs a hold of you and me there, ice cold, brings us up and brings us back to life. That's the picture that, the, that, that Paul is painting, that the Bible paints for how You and I, sinners, corrupt by nature, come alive. 
We are not merely drowning, we are drowned. We are born dead, and in him we are born again. We're totally depraved. That's where this thing starts. Second point of, of the, the five points here. Unconditional election. By unconditional election, we mean that God chose you not on the basis of any condition in you, but with regard to his mercy alone. Now, you see why I, I led the way with mysterious orthodoxy. And I led the way with we put ourselves under the word. This is some harder stuff. I understand that. But hear me. What does God mean when he says in Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I chose the easiest verse of that whole flow of thought. With total depravity as our presupposition, we are dead in our sin. Unable to choose God because they're spiritually discerned. With total depravity as our presupposition, it's clear that we can't choose God. And therefore, if we are to be saved, he must choose us. And this is why Jesus would turn to his disciples after they had followed him for who knows how, you know, many years, months, whatever. He turns to him in John 15, I think it is. And he says, listen, just to clarify things, you did not choose me. I chose you. Let's just get that out on the table now. Because, guess what? Your faith is going to seem like it's going to fail here as I go to the cross. But, but Peter, I prayed for your faith. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to restore you. I'm in charge of what I've begun in you. You understand that? Isn't that amazing? You did not choose me. I chose you. This is why Luke uh, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 13, verse 48, would record that when Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Antioch, here's what happened. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You, you realize that that is my hope as a preacher? That I am not thinking, i got to have the best arguments I got to have the best, you know, proof texts and illustrations and emotionally manipulate people and then they will believe. No, my hope is those whom God has appointed preaching will awaken. I'll move on to limited atonement. This one gets a little bit controversial even among the reformed, but... Yeah, while the language is not necessarily the best, it's really a question of the perspective from which you view the atonement. The atonement of Christ, how he paid for our sins. Um, satisfy the wrath of God. Uh, in one sense, Christ's atonement is, is not limited, but it's universal. And I think that's where people have trouble. I mean, you know, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son. And this is for the world. It's universal. Or, or, or John 1, 29. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So just universal in its scope, you, you think, regarding the atonement. It's not as if he needed <laughs> six quarts of blood to purchase all of humanity, but he only had five on the cross. He found out, he like pulling out of his pockets, uh, I'm short a quart of blood. I guess I'll settle for limited atonement. That's not what happened. His, his, his blood is sufficient for the world's sins and the forgiveness of all who would come. So from one perspective, in one sense, the atonement is universal, but in another sense, 
In another sense, it's limited. In another sense, uh, his blood um, is, is almost like a, a, a bride price, if you will. He's actually paying for a specific people. He's purchasing his bride. He's, he, he's, he's dying for those whom God chose in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. He died not hoping that his bride would come. Like, there's the payment. Will anyone have me? He died so that his bride would come. He died with you and I in mind. For... Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. Now we start to get how this applies to us in real time and space. Irresistible grace. By irresistible grace, we mean that when God purposes to save a person, there's no stopping him. There's no, hold on, I don't like this. I don't want this. My terms, when God purposes to save a person there's no stopping him so many um go to the story of lazarus as an illustration of this biblical point lazarus if you know the story in john 17 is dead right but in comes the king and being dead or not is not going to stop the king And there's this royal summons that rings out from outside the tomb. Lazarus, come out. Everyone's laughing at Jesus at this point. But the dead man, he's not laughing. He comes right out. In other words, there's no resisting this voice. When he calls, when he speaks, Over dead things, life comes forward. The dead things obey. This is how you and I got saved. If you don't believe me, read Ezekiel 37 in your own time. Tell me what you make of it. Perseverance of the saints, fifth and final. This is where we'll close. Perseverance of the saints means that um, if you're in Christ, you're going to make it to the end. Do you hear me? Perseverance of the saints means that if you're in Christ, you're going to make it to the end. I thought to myself, man, I know that there are sin-sick and storm-tossed Christians in this room. When I first began my Christian life, I didn't think I was going to make it to the end. I didn't know how this thing worked. I thought I began it. I thought it was up to me to keep it. I was scared to death I was going to lose it. And some of you are thinking, keep my faith to the end? Are you kidding me? I'm not even thinking I can make it through the day. The stuff that I'm facing or the sin that I see or whatever it is, there's no way. But perseverance of the saints declares over you, I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you hear how all this fits together? He began it. That's the whole point. That's the whole root of this assurance. He began it in your life. If he began the work, God is not lazy. He doesn't just kind of leave unfinished what he started. He takes it through to the end, which is why you get the golden chain of Romans 8.30. Hear this of your life. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Period. At the end of that sentence or exclamation point, if that's how you're feeling. Isn't that amazing? You're not going to get lost along the way. This is not up to you. Now, everybody wants this fifth point. Everybody wants it. Whether you believe in the five points of Calvinism or not, everybody wants perseverance and assurance. And so you get people to go, I don't like the election thing. I don't like the depravity thing. I don't like the limited atonement thing. I like this one. But I'll tell you something. This fifth point only blossoms you guys, on the rich stem and deep roots of the four points that come beforeward, before it. That's the only way it, it blossoms. You can't, if you cut the flower off, the flower dies. It looks pretty on your table for a week and then it's gone. But the real root and stem of our assurance is the fact that we couldn't do this thing, total depravity. But God has done it. And if he's done it, you're going to make it safely to the harbor because he finished he finishes what he starts. You want that kind of God in this church? I do. I want to preach that kind of God. Now, do I understand it? No. I struggle with it from time to time. How does that work? And what about the people that don't come? And what does that mean with evangelism, prayer, and all these other things? The problem of evil in the world. And what's the deal, God, if you're sovereign? And I don't understand. But you know what? You say it, I'm going to walk in it. I'm under your word. I trust as I... As I put myself under it, I'll find I'm standing upon it. I'm going to receive it. Mysterious orthodoxy, let's go. You're the creator, I'm the creature. I trust you. Welcome to Mercy Hill. We are reformed. Pray with me. God, thank you. <laughs> thank you that you reached down. Thank you that my salvation is not dependent upon me grabbing a hold and keeping a hold of your arm. That John 10 says that I'm in your hand and no one can take me from your hand. And John 6 says that those whom the Father has given you, you will not lose any of them, but you will raise them up on the last day. God, we are secure in you. And there are people in this room that need that more than they could even say. So I pray instead of uh, grumbling or resenting you for some of these truths, we would glory in what we can't understand, but we can articulate because you've revealed it to us in in your word. Meet us here, Jesus, we pray as we worship. In your name, amen.